let's, let's pray. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, thank you for bringing us here this morning, Lord. Thank you that you take really goofy, weird people, and you make them capable of doing your ministry. So be with us now as we prepare for your sermon, and Lord, help me to learn how to not be a mess. In your name we pray, amen. All right, thank you. Yes, um, you could take that jacket for me. Thank you. Wow, this is going a lot different than first service. <laughs> um, okay, so to this morning, we're going to be looking at the sixth chapter of Mark. The sixth chapter of Mark is probably what I would call the greatest hits outside of the last days of Jesus. The chapter six of Mark hits some of those stories that you have heard your whole life. You hear the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, he's healing the sick, some demons are cast out. All in just chapter 6. Um, and the reason I like chapter 6 too is because it is the first time that the disciples are sent off into the mission field by themselves. No ropes, no safety bar. Jesus isn't there with him because up until this point, if you think about it, uh, as we've gone through these past five chapters, it really has been this ongoing sort of Socratic seminar with Jesus as he's just walking from town to town, teaching and preaching and healing the sick and doing some awesome miracles. And the disciples are just kind of there. You know, they're walking behind. They're, 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 they're good aides. They're kind of his roadie group. You know, he goes along with them and prepares things. But they haven't them themselves been doing the ministry until today. So the scripture today we're going to start with, this comes from uh, chapter 6, and it starts halfway through verse 6. It says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to, from village, to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but don't even take an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is sending off his disciples on their own. And, and, and it seems strange at first reading, why do you think that he doesn't want them to take any extra stuff with them? And the reason is we're going to see throughout this uh, this sermon today, is he wants them to rely not on what they bring with them, but what they already have and what Jesus is going to provide for them when they get there. We are able to do godly work when we become part of his kingdom and we accept him as our savior. We get to do godly work, but it's only through godly provision that we're able to do that. I can't offer that much, but God is going to take what I have and expand it beyond my, possible, beyond my possible dreams. The other thing that Jesus wants to make sure happens when they go into these towns is he does not want the disciples to see this as an attempt to move up any social ladders. Jesus isn't doing anything really unique here. There were already traveling teachers and preachers and, and, and prophets that would visit towns from, ta uh, from time to time. But a lot of times these speakers would go into the town and stay kind of at the low rank of the social circle until they started getting known. And then they'd move up to a little higher echelon of social status and a little higher. And maybe they're then mixing with some of the real elites of that town. And suddenly they're the big guy. You know, they are the one that everyone wants to know. 
Jesus does not want that to be the case for his disciples. Jesus wants them to go in, and whoever welcomes them in first, and it might have been a good house, doesn't matter. He just wants them to go and stay because it's not about what they're going to accomplish there or, or how they're going to move up the social scale. It's about the message that they have to give and the work that they're going to do. That's all. So when they go in, they're relying totally on the people that are there and what God has provided, and they're staying at that level. There's no advancement here because that's not the goal. And that's exactly what they do. We can go in and look at verse 12 and 13. It says, they went out and they preached that people should repent, and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. It's a pretty, pretty effective ministry to go out there and be able to do that on your first try. So Mark gives this story, and then he does something very interesting. As we've been going through the book of Mark, it is one complete narrative. But then he suddenly just puts in this random story about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, important guy, does a lot of great work. As a Baptist growing up myself, big fan of him, kind of our mascot. But it doesn't seem like he has really anything to do with our stories this morning. So what I want you to do is I just kind of want you to slide him aside for right now. Seems unholy, but just push him aside and say, John, we'll, we'll get to you sometime, but not right now. And then we're going to skip down to verse 30. Because what happens is after that little John the Baptist interlude, the disciples come back. And they are so excited to tell Jesus about what they've done. So verse 30 goes like this. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and let's get some rest. I'm not going to beat up on the disciples. The disciples get beat up on all the time. But I think it's important for us to call out this verse as a moment where we can see their hearts. What I see the disciples doing in this verse is coming back so excited to share what they've done, or what they have accomplished, what they were able to do in all of those towns, what they learned, what they are now experts in. They know how to do the work of God, and they're excited to tell Jesus about it. But I don't think that that is what Jesus is actually excited about hearing. But we don't blame them for it. When we show the videos like we did this morning, it's not because, well, it's a little bit because Caitlin figured out how to take videos on her camera, and we're really excited about that. <laughs> it's really fun. I told her, I was like, Caitlin, your, your, your photos now are just blasé. No more photos, only videos. She's shaking her head. But I think it, it, they looked wonderful. But we, it's not just because of that. We also just like telling you about what we have done. We get excited. We, when you work with youth, you get to do really fun things. And to be able to spend two weekends with our high school students leading worship in a way that is it's infectious. I was meeting with a group of uh, youth pastors from the East Coast this past week, and they were just bragging on our high school students. And then they were like, can they also do the high school retreat? Can we just get rid of the North Park band and we just stick with the Beth Bethany band? I was like, no, because I'm not ready for that amount of ego for them to have. They were, and I don't think I can act as an agent any more than I already am. So we're just going to keep them to the middle school. But they really are doing great work. So it's exciting. We want to show you that. And so I think that's exactly what's happening to the disciples. They're like, God, look at all the things that we did. But I don't think that's why Jesus sent them out. I think Jesus sent them out to learn a different lesson than they're learning here. Because with the way that they come back, they come back, I feel a little cocky. Like, I've seen things now, Jesus. We've been in the real world. We cast out demons in your name. 
But then we get to the feeding of the 5,000. Because what happens is exactly what we see here. A, a crowd gathers, which always happens when Jesus is in a place, a new place. And so Jesus, instead of resting with his disciples, says, okay, you know what? We don't have time to catch up. Instead, let's do what we do, which is to preach, to give the message of the God's kingdom coming into the world, to heal the sick, and to really be with these people. And so a crowd gathers, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. When it says 5,000 men, it means that there were also women and children. So we're talking about a group between seven and 10,000 people are coming to hear Jesus preach. And then this happens. So go ahead and put up verse 35. It says, by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late, Jesus. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Here are the disciples coming back full of knowledge of how to do ministry. Jesus, it's getting late. When we were out in the field, this is about the time we would break for dinner. You know, it seems like a good flow. Let's give them, let's send them out with, with heavy hearts and empty stomachs to just really digest what you've been teaching. Also, this is a lot of people. We can't feed them. The disciples are speaking to Jesus. Jesus is aware of how to do ministry. If there's one thing Jesus knows, it's how to preach and how to kind of set plans into motion. As you read the Gospel of Mark, you see that Jesus is really on top of things. But here's the disciples, after one trip into the mission field, talking to Jesus and giving him suggestions as to how we should do ministry now. We need a lunch break, Jesus. Okay? You don't understand. And then Jesus gives the best response. He says to them, you give them something to eat. And now look at the disciples' response. Thank, put yourself in this position. Go ahead and go to the next slide. They said to him, and, and you can just see Judas. Judas, the disciple Judas, who would later on betray Jesus. Judas was in charge of the purse. Judas was in charge of the money, the budget. So you can just kind of see Judas like going back to the funds and like looking in being like, oh my gosh. That would take more than half a year's wages, Jesus. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Like, what are you thinking, Jesus? Come on, we know how to do this. Let's send them out. It's not our job. It was not dinner and a show. It was just a show. They won't even mind. Did Jesus ask them how much it would cost to feed the crowd? No. Did he ask how they were going to feed the crowd? No. Did he say, should we feed the crowd? No. He said, you feed them. And what happens is I think they maybe start to learn a little bit of the lesson that Jesus hoped that they had learned when he sent them out with just a staff and no extra. The success of ministry does not rely or depend upon what we have. It depends upon what God does with what we have. Because then we get this really kind of funny scene where what Jesus, you know, Jesus says, you know, what do you have? And, and it says, how many, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Go and see. Then go to the next slide. And, and they say, I love this scene again, because I think they're completely missing it. When they found out, they said five. Jesus, we've got five loaves and two fish. You can just see them kind of holding it up, be like, all right, even if we had 50 loaves, it's, it's, it's 10,000 people, Jesus. What do you want me to do with this? But what does Jesus do? He takes it. He takes their meager offering. He breaks it. He breaks the bread, gives thanks for it, and then he distributes it to the people. And I just wished I could stand back and be there to the disciples, handing out the food, being like, where is this coming from? 
is this even healthy? <laughs> and just continue to distribute. Now, Jesus in this moment is actually reliving a story from the Old Testament when Elijah does the same thing when he feeds a hundred with just a small, meager amount. But now he's doing it times 50-ish. Not good with math. Uh, and the disciples are mystified. And how many baskets of leftovers are there afterwards? Twelve. One for each disciple to go home and remember what Jesus did with their meager offerings. It was not about what they had. Even if they had had a thousand loaves compared to what Jesus can do, it's insignificant. I was thinking about this this morning. It's like even the richest person on earth, billions of dollars, cannot create anything out of nothing. We were at a concert last night, and they sang the, uh, the old song, nothing, nothing from nothing equals nothing. Like, that's all you can get with nothing as a human being. But in God's hands, he can take even the smallest amount or nothing at all and change the entire universe. Jesus wants us to know that the success of the gospel does not depend upon my meager offerings. He takes what we have been given and expands it and throws it out there and changes entire worlds. So you have to think about yourself in this moment. I do, because so many times growing up, when I was asked to do things, I'd look at my schedule and I'd be like, ah, jeez, I'm a busy guy. I could only maybe get 30 minutes, an hour a week to this. Like, it's not even worth doing. You know what? Forget it. Just ask somebody else. Or like, I'd look at my very meager bank account and be like, you know, it's not even worth tithing on this, you know? I didn't want to tithe in the first place, and, and, and it's not that much anyway. Why should I even do it? You know, it's not like it's going to change anything. Or I think about the skills and talents that God has given me, and I'm like, I can't even make a simple newsreel. Like, that, that blooper video is not even all. It took me hours to do one newsreel. <laughs> How could I possibly be equipped to do anything for the kingdom of God? But Jesus says, it's not about what you have. Because even if you had everything the world has to provide, it's still insignificant to what I have. It's not about the amounts. It's about you offering up what I have given you so that I can take it and multiply it times infinity. And that's what we see in the, uh, in the feeding of the 5,000. But sadly, as per usual, the disciples miss it. They miss it. They think it's amazing. But, uh, you know, they go away, and it doesn't seem like it's sunk in their heart that they're dealing with someone special in the person of Jesus. So after they feed the 5,000, it says in verse 30, uh, 47, we can go ahead and switch to that. It says, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on the land. So they've left the 5,000, they've gone to the other side. Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them, but when they saw him walking on the lake... They thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And then listen to Jesus' response yet again. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them, and the winds died down. They were completely amazed, yet again shocked, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I love this verse coming right after the 5,000 because it reminds me of how many times God does something powerful in my life and I immediately forget it. Like a prayer that I've been praying for, he answers specifically. And then the next day I'm like, oh gosh, I just wish, 
I just, I just wish God would listen to me. He just, I just can't. I want to hear his voice, you know, and I completely forget what he had just done the day before. And in this moment, though, you can kind of give some grace to the disciples because if you've ever been on the water at night in a storm, it's terrifying. And these were people who were sailors. They spent a lot of time. But in this moment, we have yet another instance where the disciples are depending solely upon their knowledge and experience and what they have at their disposal, and they're freaking out. We can't do this. This storm is too powerful. I'm a pretty good sailor, but it's, this is too much. They're straining at the oars trying to figure out how to do it on their own. And you can probably think that they think that they're going to die. The disciples several times in the Gospels think we're going to die. They never do. And Jesus walks on the water and shows up and says, take courage. I've got this. It's another moment where the disciples should look and be like, wow. Even if I was the best sailor in the world, I'm pretty much garbage compared to Jesus. When you have an infinite being that you're comparing yourself to, whatever you have at your disposal is insignificant. But how wonderful is it that Jesus walks out on the water and includes them in the story? Jesus takes our meager offerings. He takes their skills as uh, sailors, allows them to wrestle with it for a while, and then calms the waves. It is not about what I have at my disposal that's going to make or break the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is not going to allow that to happen. So I want to go back real quick to that story we skipped over because I lied. I really think that John the Baptist story is super important for this message. John uses, I mean, Mark uses this technique throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. It's called Mark and Sandwiches, um, which sounds really tasty, but has nothing to do with food. But it was a way that Mark could put stories in the middle of an ongoing story that seemingly has nothing to do with the narrative to bring a certain emotion or to intensify a point that he's trying to get across in a way that's surprising. So I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus sends out the disciples and then suddenly we get a story about John the Baptist because John the Baptist is a disciple of the one and only God. He is basically the original disciple of the New Testament. And he's out there doing God's work, not based upon his own status. John is a, is a schmuck. I mean, he's got camel fur on. He's eating locusts and honey. He's spending his time in the water. He's probably covered in like wrinkly skin. You know, when you're in the pool too long, that's basically what John was all the time. And yet John took that status and was speaking to Herod, who was the ruler of that area, like the lowest of low to the highest of high. And yet John knew that it didn't depend upon his words or his status or his outfits in order to do the work that God had given him to do. And so he spoke truth to authority, and he wasn't afraid. And it's that moment where it's like, wow, John really gets that it's God's provision. Except what happens to John? Does anybody know? It doesn't end well for John. John spends the rest of the Gospel of Mark as a dead character. Right there, chapter 6, surprise. If you, if you were waiting for non-spoilers, this is a spoiler. John dies. Herod's daughter-in-law that he's attracted to, which is part of the reason John's speaking truth to him because his life is jacked up, asks for John's head on a plate, and Herod gives it to him. And you have to wonder, like, okay, wait a minute. Does this mean that if I trust in God's provision that I might be decapitated? That should go into our membership class. Possible decapitation, if done correctly. It might lower our membership roles, but only if 
you forget that death is ineffective. Death is a horrifying, horrifying tool of the enemy. It brings fear, it brings sadness, it brings brokenness, but it is ineffective at preventing the gospel from going forward. So if we look at our lives as the most important thing that could possibly be, and we protect them at all costs, and this is why I'm on earth, to protect and to live as long as possible, then yes, trusting in God's provision might muddle up those plans. But if you believe that life does not end at death and that we have an eternal residence waiting for us, and that our job is not to just protect our lives, but to invest our lives in God's mission, and that even death itself does not prevent it from being successful, then you should go all in on this message. Because that's how John was. John knew what was possible. He knew he was ticking off the wrong people. But his goal was not, I don't know, how long John can live. John's job was to spread the gospel. And that's what he did. And that's what I want to close with. The last scriptures of um, chapter 6. Let's look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region, carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he went, into villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace, and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched were healed. Jesus' crowds continue to grow. The gospel continues to spread. John has no head, but he is present with his Savior and Father in heaven. Death itself is not enough to overcome the provisions of God. God's mission is not stopped by any earthly device because God's mission is not formed or rooted in this earth. It is formed and rooted in an eternal kingdom above. So nothing that God can do, there's nothing that the enemy can do to put a hamper in his plans. And we get to be part of something so powerful. So I want you to think this week. Think back to the way those disciples responded to Jesus. Way back when we were talking about the feeding of the 5,000. Do you find yourself answering questions that God never asked you? Does that make sense? Do you find yourself giving reasons for why you can't do something as if God is asking for your response verbally? So often we hear what God has asked us to do, and we, instead of saying, yes, Lord, I'll do it, show me how, we say, yeah, that's a great idea, God, but I'm tired. That's a great idea, God, but I hate waking up early. I do not like kids. I do not like old people. I don't like church. And Jesus is kind of looking at you and saying, I didn't ask you for why you don't want to do it. I said, go go do it. And it's in that moment that you have to trust that even your own preferences or your lack of provision is not enough to keep you from being successful in what God has called you to do. So as we go to the table today, I want you to also think about this. When Jesus breaks the bread and feeds the 5,000, that's a link to what he's going to do a couple chapters down the road. When Jesus is at the Last Supper and he breaks that bread and he says, this is my body broken for you, Jesus is showing in that moment that when you start sharing 
the body of Christ, it multiplies far beyond what we could possibly imagine. And that's what we're called to do. Each of us have been given work, jobs, skills, talents. The reason I love showing these videos, our young people are engaged in that. I don't know anybody more busy. I mean, they don't have to pay rent. They don't have to worry about food, but they're very busy, and they invest so much time beyond what I think even they should, perhaps. But they invest it because they know the return on that investment is so much greater than anything else that they could be putting their, mo- their time and skills in. So ask yourself, are, is that what you're doing right now? Or are you responding to God with why you can't? He'll take all of what you're worried about and surprise you. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you that you are a God that uses our meager offerings. Where so often we hold up what we have and we're like, this is not even worth, it's not even worth talking about, God. What can you do with this? God, there's a much better way I can use this time. I, I don't have what you're looking for. We're like Moses when you asked him to go and, and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. We just respond, we're like, well, I don't talk too good. And Jesus isn't asking us what we're good at. He's not asking what we have. He's saying, just give me what I've already given you and watch me work. Because regardless of how much we have, it's insignificant compared to what God himself is doing out there in the world. So I can take the pressure off If I come with two pence or I come with billions, it doesn't matter. God can take whatever I provide and multiply. So Lord, allow us to stop answering questions you're not asking us and instead take leaps of faith into those places that you're calling us to go. Allow us to trust that you are the master at this, not me, not us. Even though we've got a little bit of ministry under our belts, you've been doing it for eternity. So Lord, be with this church as we continue in this series Allow us to trust that this scripture is shaping and changing our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen.